You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. <laughs> Luke chapter 13, just a few verses, 31 to 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. I just want to pause for a second. There are so many corrupt people that encounter Jesus in the Bible, and most of them are not named. Because Jesus is not in the business of naming people and embarrassing them. However, a few names are listed that Jesus does address directly. Herod, Caesar, Pilate, Caiaphas. Men in power, Jesus does name. He doesn't name their henchmen, but he does name them. But I think it's important to note that it is okay to refer to a ruthless dictator as a ruthless dictator. And it is okay and it is Christian to speak truth to what is actually happening in the world. But here's something interesting. Jesus does flip tables, but how many times? Jesus does call Herod a fox, and not because Herod looks good. He calls him a fox because he's crafty and evil. But how many times does he do it? It is Christian to say the truth of the corruption that is in power, but it is also Christian to not belabor the point. It is Christian to say the truth about what is happening, but it is not Christian to make a living on your social media page or in your discourse constantly saying it. He, does he refer to him as a fox? Yes. Does he do it more than once? No. Does he flip tables? Yes. Does he flip them constantly? No. And does he speak Critical truth to people who are in power by name? Yes. Does he flip tables? Yes. But then, does he go to the cross and die for the people whose name he's calling out and whose table he's flipping? Yes. What qualifies us to be able to speak critical truth about and to power is also our desire to see them transformed and maybe even at our own cost. Okay? I feel better now. I needed to get that out. I am disappointed with what I see in the Christian world specifically because that is my lane and that is who I am called by God to critique at how we stay on the gas pedal of just constantly creating essentially narcissistic uh, cynicism by always letting everybody know our opinion about how bad we think any leader is. But what equally bothers me is when the flip reaction says, never say anything at all, just let God deal with it. Both of those are wrong. It is incumbent upon Christians to be able to discern and critique people who are in positions of influence, but not be so idolatrous with it that we can't stop doing it. We have to do it and move on. But it is important to do both, and I think Jesus illustrates that here. Go and tell that fox. I cast out demons and performed cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, 
for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So now he didn't just only criticize Herod, he also criticized the Pharisees who are hiding behind the camouflage of Herod who also want to kill Jesus. Right? At that very hour, Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. It's interesting how people who don't get along with other leaders do get along with other leaders when their own identity is under attack by Jesus too. So all of a sudden, the Pharisees who do not get along with King Herod all of a sudden act like we're best friends with King Herod because we want Herod to get rid of Jesus, and so we're just going to try to freak Jesus out. And Jesus calls them both out. He says, you and go tell that fox that I'm casting out demons, I'm curing the sick, and on the third day I finish my course. And then he says, I must go to Jerusalem within the next three days because apparently prophets only die in the city they came to help. And he just levels the political corruptness and the religious corruptness right then and there. Now everybody's quiet. And what does he do now that he has their attention? He weeps. You cannot critique a person you are not willing to weep over after. Can you hand me that water, please? I'm going to take a dramatic sip of water. Thank you, Aldo. You getting taller? We critique, we rip up, we blast, we post. And we don't weep for the person that we're blasting. We weep because of what they've done, which is a good thing. But Jesus also weeps for the person he's blasting. And that's what makes his critique of them loving and not cynical. And we need the Holy Spirit, especially in this Lenten season, to say to us, what is it? that is blocking my weeping from coming out over those people that bother me the most. And now we can zoom back in. We, we can get away from talking about people who run Russia, and we can start talking about people that we go to work with tomorrow. When I want to criticize somebody, what makes it so easy for me to criticize and so difficult for me to weep over them after the criticism? Because if the criticism was holy, it would make you weep. If the criticism was satanic, it would make you feel good that you criticized. We have to be people who are animated by the full spirit of Christ and not by the cherry-picked moments that Jesus had. He critiques, and then he weeps. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, and please listen to this sentence very carefully, and I tell you, you will not see me until. Everybody say until. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. My goodness, there is so much to say, but we're not going to say all of it today. I want to reiterate the fact, two things. Number one, men, please sign up for the men's breakfast. We have a very healthy discussion that I want to have with you on Saturday and get your friends to sign up as well. Also, if you want to be water baptized, please sign up online if you're watching from home or sign up in the foyer. We want you to have that experience of regeneration in the presence of God and also in the presence of your congregation. 
And I also want everybody to start praying about this. And normally we talk to our leadership first, and right now they're hearing it for the first time too because I just, I've been feeling this kind of burning in my bones for a little while now. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday for Salem Tabernacle this year. I believe, and if you know me enough, you know that I don't tout these moments. I don't use these things as leverage or uh, emotional manipulation. I'm saying it because it's the truth. I feel like that weekend, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, is a weekend where God wants many of us to rededicate our lives to the Lord. For some of you, it will be the first time you've entered a relationship with Jesus. For some of you, it will be the honest understanding that since COVID, a lot has cooled down in your spiritual life, and you've had the gates of your life open, and a lot of carnality has been invited in and has stuck around and become a new normal. And you don't need to get saved, but you need to have a fresh start. You need to have a cleansing. You need to have a moment where you say, I'm going to remember this Easter weekend of 2022 as the day I gave my heart back over to the Lord. And then for some of us, it may be just a small portion of our life that we have given, we have given our whole life over to God, but we know and he knows that there's a small portion of our heart that we have not fully given over. This is the weekend to do that. So pray with me as we get closer to Easter that people would have that regenerating experience of salvation and also of rededication. What are we focusing on during Lent as we lead up to such a burst of Holy Spirit fire on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday? What are we focusing on during Lent? Five things that we will say very quick. Number one, we are focusing on embracing brokenness. The brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own life. And when I say embracing it, I, a better word might even be to befriend it, to get to know it, to pay attention to it, to listen to it speak to you about itself. For too long, we've had a rebuke and repress Christian uh, view toward brokenness. And all the while, the Holy Spirit fills our brokenness so that it will speak to us about itself, so that we can understand why we feel the way we feel, and so that God can heal it. Because as we've said, God heals those things that we're honest about. He heals those things that we're honest about. So we have to embrace our brokenness. What else do we embrace? We embrace salvation. We embrace all of the ways that Jesus happens in that brokenness. And you heard me say this last week. Jesus exists to happen in brokenness. He exists to be a light in the... He exists to be a life that trampled down death by... He trampled down death by... Somebody say it out loud. I know I got a Greek Orthodox in here somewhere. He trampled down death by death. We almost did good. You guys got a B minus on that one. That's okay. He trampled down death by death. You can't get to where Jesus is until you're willing to embrace death. That's why in Job, when Job is saying, I don't understand why these things are happening, but death has heard a rumor of it. And that rumor that death heard about in Job was Jesus. He tramples down death by death. If we avoid the brokenness, we also avoid the presence of God. Because he's always where things are broken. We embrace simplicity for the next 38-ish days. 
or 28-ish days. I almost panicked just now. I was like, I need creamer in my coffee soon. I also need something else I gave up. But we are making our way to Palm Sunday. <laughs> Simplicity. No additions. No add-ons. No clothes shopping. No upgrades. Is that extreme for many of us? Yeah. But I hope that needles you a little bit. This is a season of decluttering and simplifying. Of getting rid of, not adding. That's what it's a season for. We can spend so much mental energy on what we need to add to our house, what we need to add to our wardrobe, what we need to add to our bank account, what we need to add to our social networks, what we need to add to dot, dot, dot. And Lent is a season to say, get away from that exhaustion for a minute, look at what you have, and and get rid of some stuff. Get rid of some stuff. Create room, as Stephanie said last week, create room so that God can create more room. Embracing emptiness, fasting to make room for more room, and embracing endurance, and this is what we're going to talk about today, embracing endurance, getting rid of the mental sprint. Even if our body can't stop sprinting right now because we're busy, because we're trying to keep food on the table, and we're trying to keep the lights on, and I don't know if you've noticed, but it's a little bit expensive to drive right now, and things are getting a little nerve-wracking and a little crazy, and so maybe we feel that need to have to work a few extra hours. It's all understandable, but there is a mental sprint that can become a walk, even if our body is still sprinting. There is a mental hurriedness that God can calm even if our body is hurried. So you can remain as busy as you are, but have an inner settledness. He wants to give that to you during Lent. Because God, whether we like it or not, and we don't, is a God who takes, and I'm going to say this literally, forever to do things. Has anybody ever wondered if he's actually coming back? Or if he didn't just kid us and zoom off someplace and he's like, they really think. He's taking quite some time to finish being God, as Dr. Chris Green says. I want him to hurry up and finish being God so the world can look like God has finished being God. But he moves slowly. And so what do we do? Last week, we talked about the desire to be pushy. When things are moving too slow, when people are moving too slow, when our own transformation is moving too slow, we have the tendency to want to be pushy with ourselves and with people. And what do you do when you're pushy? When you push someone, you add your weight to the weight they're already bearing and they fall over. But we ask the Lord to heal our desire to be pushy and give us a desire to be supportive. It is literally the opposite of being pushy. When you're pushy, you add your weight to somebody else. When you're being supportive, you brace yourself so that you can add their weight to you. And hold them long enough for Christ to have an encounter with them. So much of our life It's just about being containers and being able to hold the brokenness in another person or in the world and hold it long enough for Christ to come and make all things new. And he does some of that in our life. How many of you in this room can say, I once was in darkness, but now I'm in light? Come on, Salem. 
So he does it. It's not that he doesn't. He does it as prophetic signs that he's eventually going to do that with everything. This week, we need to talk about, and it's, it's, it piggybacks off of last week. This week, briefly and simply, we need to talk about the toxic desire to fix things. Has anybody ever thought I could fix them? Oh, we love saying I'm in the light as he is in the light. Has anybody felt like somebody thought they could fix you? We need to fast and pray for this section, who's having a lot of issues. A repeat of last week. Whenever our identity is rooted in what we do, we will eventually become a takeover person and have a takeover spirit. When our identity is in what we do, when your identity, Jeff, is in your ability to perform those amazing instruments, if that was your identity, you would always need to manipulate people to keep giving you opportunities to play them, and you would develop a takeover spirit. But because your identity is Christ, you are as content to play right here as you are to play in Carnegie Hall, and that's what I love about you. That's what I love about you, and I think we all appreciate that about you. But think about that. If your identity is in how you wife or in how you husband or in how you parent or in how you friend or in how you are educated, you will need it to happen now and you will need everyone around you to conform to be good little soldiers so that you could walk in your identity and you will develop a controlling, manipulative, takeover spirit. Our identity is never in what we do. And I say this knowing that this phrase is so simple, it's been overused. But our identity is simply in the fact that God said, let there be, and you showed up. Light's identity is not that it shines. It's that God said, let there be light, and there was light. The light doesn't shine to have its identity. The light's identity is in the God who spoke it, into existence. It does what it does because it was spoken into existence. But the sun doesn't need to shine to be the sun. God just needs to keep saying shine. And that's where, it, that's where its identity comes from. When our identity is in our function, we become fixers instead of people patient to watch God heal. We should have a desire to see people healed not fixed. Has anybody ever in their home fixed something that broke again and said, it broke again? I just fixed it. And the 15th time, why is there no water in our dishwasher? Now, the dishwasher just looks like an ugly cabinet because there's no water in it. It's a cabinet for dirty dishes. It broke. We just fixed it. Fixed things need fixing again very quickly. Healed things stay healed. Because nothing will be fully healed until Jesus fully heals everything. 
And so we are waiting, and our temptation, our temptation to turn stone into bread is to think, I can fix this in myself or in you. Or, because we can't fix what's going on in the world, I can fix my insecurities and anxieties about what's happening in the world by teeing off all the time on different people and and joining all of these toxic debates that leads no one to the Lord. But it fixes my anxiety about what I can't control. See, when we become fixers, we end up needing fixes. And we like to take that narcotic hit off of hearing our opinion spoken again very well that time. What does it mean to fix things? Fixing desires to, number one, fasten something securely to a position. When you fix something, you fix it to the wall. You fasten it in a particular position so it cannot move. Yes, We want to do this if we're being honest. We would never admit it. But if we're being honest, we want to fix people so that they stay and remain in a particular place and in a particular posture. I want my kids saved. I want them in this church. I want them at that altar. And anything less is unacceptable. I want my spouse to be dot, 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 and anything less is unacceptable. We want to fix things to a particular position. The Pharisees and Herod wanted to fix Jerusalem, and so what did they do? They fastened Jesus in a particular position so that he couldn't move and left him there. Jesus fastened or fixed to a cross is what trying to fix things looks like. Now he can't move. Now things will be fine. No, they're going to be better than fine, but not the kind of fine you guys were looking for. <laughs> Leave. Herod wants to kill you. That's the Pharisees trying to fix the problem they're having. People are going out to him. People aren't taking us seriously anymore. Translated, I'm not as needed as I used to be back in the day. I don't have the same function as I did back in the day. Back in the day, I led Bible studies. Back in the day, I led prayer marches. Now nobody needs me anymore. I need to fix this problem. Let's get rid of the people who are having those experiences. They say, go away from here. We want to fasten you to a place called not here. <laughs> Go someplace else and don't come back. Be fastened to that place. We don't care where it is as long as it's not interrupting our sphere of influence. Just ask the Holy Spirit. There's so much more I want to say. But just ask the Holy Spirit, where do I want people fastened and fixed to a particular position? And if they move just so, I get anxiety in a sense that I want to control things. They just budge from here to there. Like, I, I love our church, but if it just did more of this, then I would be happy. If my job would just give me this one little job description, then I'd be good. I know, I know my friends aren't the most moral people, but if they would just, just get better in this one area, then I would be. We're trying to nail them to something. Fixing doesn't work. Fixing breaks things. 
See what I did there? What else does fixing desire to do? Fixing desires to settle on a particular action and or a particular date. It is set in stone. It is fixed that when I get home from church on Christmas Eve, I watch a Christmas carol. And I have had moments, and my wife is not here. Pray for our children to get better. So she won't be here to talk about the fact that it maybe happened this year. But when, when that is disrupted, you can tell that I had a date fixed, firmly fixed. And when I can't do it, I can even get grumpy, believe it or not. And I know you don't see me as a grumpy person, but imagine me even grumpy on Christmas Eve after church. How pathetic are you when you go home on Christmas Eve after church and you can be grumpy? Jacqueline's like, Bill, you need to be visited by three ghosts tonight (laughs) and fix this problem. Ooh, heal this problem. The Pharisees settled on a time. We're going to kill him during Passover. And one of them even speaks out as to why. Isn't it expedient that one man die on behalf of the entire nation? See what happens when you try to fix a date and you fix a time? You end up using the Bible to actually injure the cause the Bible is trying to heal. He spoke out rightly. It is expedient that one man die on behalf of the nation, but not the way he just meant it. Satan tries to get us to use the scriptures. Jesus wants us responding to them. And too many Christians just line up verses like bullets in a gun and think that that is speaking truth. Caiaphas speaks truth. It is expedient that one man die on behalf of the nation. And he prophesied without knowing he was prophesying because the Holy Spirit is greater than darkness. But when we're trying to fix a date, when we're trying to fix a time, we will end up using even good things in our life to give us the control that we desire, thus accidentally turning stone into bread. And the final thing that fixing desires to do is to create a situation with no escape. Oh, and as Christians, we do this better than anybody We try to ambush people so we can have a conversation with them about Jesus. Remember when the Passion of the Christ came out way back when? Churches would gather outside the movie theater doors. And when people were high and drunk on emotion, they would try to get them to commit to something they weren't ready to commit to. Using the spirit's emotion kind of like alcohol. And getting people to make a bad decision when they're inebriated with the gospel. We try to capture people in these moments. Have you ever been in a situation where there's a bunch of you and you're going to maybe pray for dinner or something and there's somebody there who's not saved and the person who prays basically prays an altar call? Lord, thank you for this food. Bless the hands that prepared it. And if any of us are hiding from your presence, if any of us... Starting with me, Lord, don't have a relationship with you. I pray that before we eat, we would know that you died for our sins. 
rose from the dead and that we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That person's out. I know they're talking about me and I'm going to leave while everybody's eyes are closed. We try to ambush people. This is what they did to Judas. They tried to pin him in a situation where he couldn't move left or right. But they trapped him. They fixed him so that they could get to Jesus to harm him. So before we get into what Jesus does about this, just close your eyes for a moment. I just gave the most extreme, the most heavy, the most sort of fire and brimstone-ish way of describing this, but just ask yourself, where, and I, I have done this all morning, and my list is long, where do we try to fix people because we are impatient and think that Jesus might take too long to heal them? Where do we want Jesus to hurry up and so then we become his hurry up? Where do we lose God because we're outrunning him in somebody else's life? In other words, why does goodness and mercy have to follow us so long? Because maybe we've outran it trying to do its work before it gets there. Maybe we should be following goodness and mercy because we're moving at a slower pace than God so that God can get places first and that we could get there and help him finish his work, not start it for him. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to all of us, not just now, but for the rest of this Lenten season, where are we pushy instead of being supportive? Where are we fixers because we're impatient rather than waiting to join you in your slow and methodical healing operation in people's lives? What does Jesus do to heal this? This has to be us toward others. Everybody, you can open your eyes now, like I said. There's a certain point where I will lose all of you if we keep our eyes closed. I drove 10 hours north from South Carolina this past week, and you're always tempted to take that long blink. You cannot take it. You cannot take the long blink. What does Jesus do? This is what we have to do toward ourselves, because we also try to fix ourselves the same way we try to fix other people. And dare I say, more often than not, when we're trying to fix other people, we're merely just avoiding the same area in our life where we need fixing. I love one of the things that President Zelensky said. He said, if you want to know what Putin is going to do next, see what he's accusing the world of. And that's when you know what he might be fixing to do next. Where we accuse usually shines a direct light into where we need to be healed. Herod seeks to kill. That's his way of fixing. But Jesus says something interesting. Jesus says, I, unlike Herod, I don't kill, I don't destroy, I don't condemn. Here's what I do. I cast out demons and I cure what does that mean? And you've heard me say this in a different way many times. Jesus doesn't destroy. He casts out. Jesus doesn't end a person. He ends what is ailing that person. Jesus doesn't condemn a person. Jesus condemns the evil in that person out of the person. 
That's what Jesus does. Jesus gets into the gut-busting gray area, and he sees the difference between the real you and the demonic that is operating on you. He casts out so that the person is remained whole. Fixing eliminates, but healing separates and discerns and fasts and prays and laments and cries and does everything it can to pull the evil out of the person so that all that is left is the person in their right mind, standing up straight, no issue of blood, whole. He cures. He doesn't throw away things that are broken. He doesn't throw out sour milk. He makes it whole again. There's no one that's so broken that Jesus can't heal. There's no one so misused that Jesus can't make right again. He doesn't throw out broken things. There's nothing in his garbage can. There's nothing in his recycling bin because he makes all things new all of the time. He doesn't throw things out. Herod, I want to kill you. Pharisees, leave. He wants to kill you. Jesus, mm, part of me might want to kill you, but I actually want to heal you. I want to heal you, Herod. I want to heal you, Putin. I want to heal you, Salem. I don't want to throw you in the garbage. I won't throw you in the garbage. Take yourself out of the garbage you've thrown yourself in because I didn't put you there. I want to heal. I want to cast out. And on the third day, I finish my work. This part shows us what the first two parts look like. I cast out, I cure, and on the third day I finish the casting and the curing. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus dying, weeping, and lamenting for the very person he called a fox. For the very people whose tables he overturned. For the rich young ruler who didn't want to follow him. For the people who he said, woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but you're full of dead man's bones. After he does that stuff, after the curing and the casting, comes the dying for those people. But we always leave that out. (laughs) Because I'm not going to pay for somebody that rotten. And now Jesus needs to heal us. Fixing fastens something so that it cannot move. Healing dislodges the evil that has fastened itself to me so that I can finally move. So that I can finally maybe one day have free will. Was that confusing? Our will is bound by sin. How many of you have said ever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave church, and I'm going to be nice to people for the rest of the day. How many have said that before? Today's is a new day. I'm walking in newness of life, and I am going to be patient. And then, you see, you get out of church on a good day at 1145, when the Spirit is administrative, and we get out of here at 1145, and maybe by 1210, you've messed up. Because your will isn't free. It's bound by temptation, sin, and death. Jesus is always trying to free our will 
so that we can finally do the things that we're inspired by God to do. It wants to dislodge the evil that has been fixed to us. Fixing settles on a particular date or a particular action where healing is slow and steady for all life long. No date, no particular action. Jesus never says, I'm with you until. I am with you to the uttermost is what he says. I have loved you to the uttermost, which is the uttermost English word to say I will never, ever stop loving you. There is no fixed date that I will say now it's over. There is no fixed moment. There is no fixed action. Jesus will use anything and everything to communicate his love to you. There is nothing fixed except for the fact that he will never stop opening up possibilities for you to be healed. And so we should be that way to other people. I know. I know. That's what I'm trying to say. Fixing creates a situation with no escape. But healing just creates infinite possibilities. Like Steph said today, awe, wonder, and curiosity are the only ways that we can ever begin to think about understanding the ways in which Jesus wants to heal people. There is no toolbox. Jesus will inhabit and happen to everything, even a tomb, if it means that it could possibly bring salvation to somebody's life. But we have like our two or three go-to moves, the plays we like to call. I was like that in the 90s. I only listened to the single. I never listened to the album. I was that person who kept putting a song on repeat. I had my thing on Bended Knee by Boys to Men. Got played out on my CD. Like, I had my thing. I swear by all for one. I'm, you know, whatever. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Instinct, bam, on repeat. Like, that's what I did. I don't care. Don't look at me like that, Rob. I don't care. He's like, I'm never playing the drums in this church again unless Pastor Bill's musical taste gets fixed. We have, we have our move. We have our thing. And Jesus is like, I really want to take the box. Like, there is no end to the different ways that I'm going to try to heal the world. And you're either going to join me on the craziness or you're going to watch and realize that I could have been a part of that. But I was too busy with my principle to realize there are other things and, and many other avenues that exist with an infinite God. And we do believe he's infinite, right? I hope so. And finally... Like we said earlier, fixing, I need a fix. I've given some stuff up for Lent. One of the things I gave up was sugar creamer in my coffee. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you, but good for you. It's a big deal for me. My wife, who forgot that I gave that up, bought Twinkie creamer. Why, Lord? Why? Why? How come? I need a fix. I don't, it might not be masculine, but I don't drink coffee by itself. I need to put a nice winter coat of something on that. Like, I can't do it. 
I'm like a tracks coffee kind of hipster. Don't I look like a hipster? <laughs> Any trendy person is like, I, we, we need to leave now too. We're going to leave with Rob. We need a fix. We need a dose of something that we, and you only need a fix whenever you've put some distance between you and an addictive reality. When there's been some distance, you need the fix. You need another hit of it. We are addicted to trying to tell people what they can do to better their situation. We are addicted to it. And sometimes we go days, what months, even maybe a year of saying, I'm just going to let, I am going to play host to the grace and mercy of God. And I'm not going to tell them what they're doing wrong. And I'm not going to tell them what they can do next. And then finally, when we get stressed or tired, we recoil right back and we take a hit. You didn't read your Psalms today. That's why you're depressed. It's not clinical. And we just recoil right back. Boom. We try to fix what happens when you refuse the fix? You go into withdrawal. You go into detox. You get sick. What does the withdrawal symptom look like when the narcotic that we're smoking is control? We see it with Jesus. He's standing there. He can change their hearts with the same word that causes the sun to shine, but that is not the kind of power he has. He doesn't want to wield his power that way because that is actually weakness and it's not power. Here's what power is. Instead of smoking and getting a hit on the fix of controlling, Jesus weeps. Weeping, grief, Crying actual tears is the symptomatic withdrawal of not controlling somebody. Grief fills. It's the convulsion of saying, I can change you, but I don't want to be that kind of person, so I'm going to stand back. And God, why won't they see you? And that feeling when you let go of the hit to control and just let that feeling manifest, you say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a hen gathers her children. I have sent prophets. I have sent miracles. I have sent scripture. I have come myself as the exact imprint of God's nature. And you still won't listen. And he fills the void of control with intercession and grief. And here, we are so busy trying to roll up and smoke happiness that we would never be able to grieve for people that way. Because we think grief is faithless and wrong to be down in the doldrums. If somebody's drowning in the ocean, is it wrong for somebody from the National Guard to go into the very ocean they commanded people not to go in because there's a hurricane? It's not wrong. It's heroic. When the world is grieving and we dive into the grief with them, it is not faithless. It's heroic. It is heroic. He says, and when you look this up in the original language, he overlaps words and tenses so you don't know which one he's using in either of these two phrases. Listen to me. This is cool. 
He says in one area, I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers her children. And then in another area, he says to Peter, you will not, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. So they translated one of them hen, and they translated one of them rooster. But in reality, Jesus used both, but they don't know which one he used when. So the gathering and the crowing of this mother-father bird that just wants its children to be okay. So I thought this morning, what if the rooster crowing, you ready, Steph? What if the rooster crow? this is the kind of stuff me and Stephanie talk about all the time, so I'm just going to talk to you in front of everybody else. What if the rooster crowing isn't a sign of Peter's condemnation, but what if the rooster crowing is really the sound of impending salvation? I want to gather you like a hen gathers her children. When the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And we hear the sound of the rooster crowing as if it's the sound of Peter's condemnation. But what if it's the sound of rescue coming? What if it's the sound that kept Peter from denying him a fourth time and something Peter in his own psyche never could have bounced back from? What if the sound of the rooster isn't just the sound of, see, you denied me, but what if it's the sound of, I'm still coming to gather you whether you like it or not. I'm going to save you from this. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to gather you. I'm going to rescue my children. Peter, do you love me? So this morning I said to Jacqueline, remember when we went to that monastery in Mystic, Connecticut uh, around Easter time and they had, it was just after Easter and they had, you know, flowers everywhere like you have in Easter and then right in the middle of the flowers they had a rooster. Not a real one. And we were saying then, man, like, if you're Peter, do you really want to see? I like what you do at the place. Why do you have a rooster there? Like, but what if Peter's like, put it there? Because when I heard that sound, I knew he was coming for me. And then Sophia said, we have a rooster at the church. I'm like, no, we don't. She's like, yeah, on top of the building. I know. I was like, oh, oh, you mean besides that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I thought you meant a different one than that one. <laughs> Hovering over top of this building is the sound of God saying, even when you go so far astray, I am coming for you, Salem. That's healing, not fixing. Let's stand to our feet this morning. As usual, if you would like to come up for communion, you can. We'll have the bread here. If you feel more comfortable receiving uh, one of the individual cups, the ushers will have them for you. Everybody knows what my favorite holidays are, and it all begins with, well, Halloween, but we won't talk about that now, Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving, what do we like to see? We like to see the turkey with all the fixings. That was the final definition of fix, fixings. And I thought, Jesus, why are there no fixings around this meal? And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, there are some meals where it's fun to have fixings. But there are other meals where you need to know that the main course is enough. And you don't need anything else.
Sometimes we like to dress up our life with fixins, house, car, clothes, because the main course isn't enough for us. This meal is the most boring of all meals you could possibly have. If somebody, if we got together and said, what meal is going to represent the 2,000 plus year history of our movement, we would have picked something dope, pizza, something that everybody likes. He picks bread, broken pieces of bread, to say you don't need any fixings in your life. Jesus is enough. He's enough for you right now, wherever you are, however you are, whenever you are. He is enough for you right now. His love is enough for you. He is not trying to fix you. He's not trying to put the old version of you back together again. He is making all things new. He's healing you. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed by us, on the night when we caused the sun to go down in your life, you sat behind a table and you did what David failed to do with Goliath. You put weapons down and you prepared a table. And instead of stones, you broke bread. And you didn't fix us. You promised that your body would heal us. And so I pray that your spirit would descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would descend on us. And over these next few moments, I pray, Father God, that you would make us aware of where we are trying to fix ourselves, fix our circumstances, fix other people, and help us to put those tools down and join you in your life of offering yourself for healing. I pray that you would create the desire in us to join you in your lifelong healing process and put down the tools of fixing. The desire to fix may become the desire to heal. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, as the worship team comes up here and ministers to us, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. If you would like to receive on this side of the room, you can come down. This side of the room, you can come down here. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.